Well, good morning, everyone. I got fired last week, but I'm back, and that's good. Yeah, I thought I might lose my job after stating my jealousy over Pastor Jeff's wife Heidi's muscles. Yes. Phenomenal biceps. But if we haven't met, if you're just jumping into this series this week, uh, we're talking about jealousy this week and next week. And we launched it off last week. We said that um, jealousy, the good kind, is kind of a paradox. And, and it really is. When we look at jealousy as a concept, it is overwhelmingly negative. Uh, nobody's excited about jealousy. Nobody in our culture, and actually not a lot of people in the Bible are either. And we said culturally, as we look at jealousy, uh, boy, it's, it's a thing that if I'm jealous, I'm probably an insecure person. I'm probably unhealthy or unstable or something that, man, I just don't want to be that way. I don't want to be that weak that I'm kind of drawn into that kind of emotion. And we said last week, biblically, as we looked at the concept of jealousy, it doesn't get much better, right? While there's not necessarily the, the side of weakness or insecurity, jealousy is viewed as a sinful thing. Uh, it's wrong. It's a moral problem. It's something that we're not supposed to be as Christ followers. But as we begin to look at this a little bit, we ran into really a problem within the Bible. We said, wait a minute, the Bible itself is telling us that jealousy isn't good. And then while jealousy is viewed as sinful and wrong, at the same time, the Bible is telling us that God, the author of the Bible, is a jealous God. What do you do with that? It's mind-blowing. It's a crisis. How do we approach that? And so last week, we began to open that whole conversation up. Guys, if you missed that, I would really encourage you to catch up online. Probably want to watch it. We interacted with the whiteboard a little bit, and so you want to make sure to catch that and get caught up. But let me give you the high-level review of what we covered. We said that there's more to the equation, right, than just kind of black and white jealousy. We said there's really a couple kinds. At least we'll define it that way for our conversation. And we said there's a good kind and a bad kind of jealousy. And here's kind of the bad kind. And we said that the, the bad kind of jealousy is this. It's a desire for a possession or relationship that someone else has, right? So it's when I look at you and kind of long to have something that you have. I wish I had your car, or I wish I had a marriage like yours, or I wish I had muscles like Heidi's or whatever. That's the bad kind of jealousy, right? It's when I'm coveting, I'm envying, I'm longing to have something or someone uh, that actually kind of you are connected to. That's the bad kind. The good kind of jealousy, we saw that there's another brand to jealousy, and it's the good kind. What is that? The good kind of jealousy is zeal for the heart of the person that I'm in a relationship with. Let me talk to this one a little bit and unpack it. So last week, we said that um, if I'm looking at the relational side of jealousy, if I look at a committed and a defined relationship that I'm in, and I look at maybe a person that I'm in that relationship with, and if they begin to drift from that relationship, and they are drifting from the defined relationship that, that we're a part of, and we've committed to, when they drift out of that, my response is jealousy. I'm zealous for their heart to connect back into the relationship the way that we agreed that we would relate to one another. We said that's the good kind of jealousy. Now, as we looked at all of this, we said in general, if jealousy's showing up, good or bad, it's probably a negative situation. And there's just a reality to that. Whenever jealousy does show up, if it's good or bad, something's kind of broken, right? And in the good kind of relationship, what's broken is my heart or 
the person who's drifting out, their heart is drifting from the relationship that they have committed to. And we said that really starts to matter when we're talking about our relationship with God. And what I want to do today is, as we landed last week's conversation, I want to revisit that idea. We, we ended last week kind of pushing pause. I warned you. I said, I'm going to leave you hanging last week, and I did. I left us with this question. Is it possible that God is jealous for you, uh, that, that even right now, that he longs to have maybe portions of our heart uh, that we don't realize that we're withholding from him? And so today's conversation is going to be us advancing towards understanding who God is as a jealous God. And I guess I just feel like I need to give you a little caveat, a warning here. This is going to be a little bit of a heavier conversation. Uh, It's a little bit of a more intense conversation, but I think it's worth it because this is such an important topic. If we have a God who is zealous for us, right? We said that's the biblical word, word for jealousy. If he has zeal and passion for our hearts, and maybe we don't even know about that zeal or know about that passion, it's critical that we begin to move towards that and begin to understand it. So that's exactly what we're going to do today. We're going to start to understand what makes God jealous, where does this jealousy come from, man, and how do we respond to it if we find that God is jealous for us. So I'm going to take us back to the verse that we finished with last week, Exodus chapter 34. And what I want to do is I want to read that to us and then begin to put us back into the context that this was found in a little bit and start to get around our minds around uh, where this idea of God's jealousy was formed. So 34.14, let me just read it to you. The author's Moses And uh, he's talking a little bit about what it means for us to relate to God. And he says, do not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. Okay, let me try to reconstruct what was happening at the time. So you've got Egypt, right? The nation of Egypt. Think pyramids, right? That whole era, what was happening is in this time when this verse was written and Moses captured in the book of Exodus is the Egyptian people would have enslaved the people of Israel, the Israelites, and these are God's people. The Israelites are God's people. It's a nation that God had chosen. And what had happened is they had enslaved them, they put them to work, and God would eventually tap on Moses and say, Moses, what I want you to do is through a series of plagues, it's a phenomenal story, it's all laid out in the book of Exodus, I want you to set my people free, I want you to kind of uh, bring them out of Egypt, and I want you to take them out in the desert, and I want to form man, a, com- a kind of a committed and a defined relationship with my people. I want to build intimacy, and I want to build a nation, and I want them to be my people, and I want to be their God, and it's going to be fantastic. And so the people of Israel, while they're enslaved here in Egypt, what they would have witnessed is they would have witnessed idolatry. They would have witnessed idolatry. Let me give you a definition for that real quick. Idolatry is offering a level of devotion, a level of devotion to something or someone that should be reserved only for God. Should be reserved only for God. Let me say that again. It's offering a level of devotion to something or someone that should be reserved only for God. What they would have seen in the nation of Egypt when they're enslaved is they would watch the Egyptians interact with other gods. 
and worship them. And the form that those other gods would have taken, the form of the idolatry at the time, would have literally been them kind of bowing down and worshiping things like rocks and monuments and things that people created with their hands and said, this is our God. And they would have believed that those forms of idols or other gods, that they would have been the representation of God. And God would look and say, people of Israel, those gods that you have witnessed Egypt worshiping and other nations that would interact with Egypt worshiping, I don't want you to interact with me like that. I don't want you to form these idols. And I don't want you to worship any other god. I want you to worship me alone. As idolatry has been a temptation for all people in all time that have ever try to interact with God, and here's how it works. Uh, The people of God in any given situation are always tempted to copy how the people around them worship. There always is a temptation to pick up the idols of the day. And the idols of this day were rock and stone and monument. They were foreign gods, the sun god and this god and that god. And that would show up over time. And historically, the people of Israel, as they've tried to be faithful to God, they would struggle deeply to be true to God and true to not worshiping any other God. They would struggle deeply with idolatry. Let me bring us up to present time, at least uh, during the time of Jesus. And what would have happened here is the people of Israel would have struggled deeply with these kinds of gods as I've described them, idols, often physical, monuments, stone, wood, rock, right? Physically worshiping them, that brand of idolatry. What we see in the time of Jesus is uh, there's been a sophistication to the brand of idolatry. It's starting to look different. So the people of Israel, when Jesus shows up, are not so much bowing down to rock, stone, and monument. This form of idolatry is one of the heart. It's one of the heart where where the gifts that God has given are over-elevated, and a level of devotion is being offered to them that's really only reserved for God. And I want to begin to bring us into this conversation, because I think that kind of context is actually the kind of context that we find ourselves in. You and I don't tend to struggle with that brand of idolatry that bows down to rock or stone. Uh, There might be a different kind of idolatry, however, uh, that might even show up here. And we don't typically think this way, but I want to introduce us to this language because idolatry is the thing that would invoke God's jealousy. Boy, it would inflame God's passion and his zeal for us when our hearts are drawn to something other than him, and that level of devotion is offered somewhere else. Okay, let's dive into this. I want to show you one one passage, and it's critical that we nail this principle because it helps us to understand more about God's jealousy. Jesus is talking in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. He's beginning his ministry. He's talking about money in this passage. And he tells us something that I think is truly profound and actually very clarifying. Here's what he says in 624. Jesus says this very simply, no one, no one can serve two masters. No one can serve two masters. 
He's talking and focusing on money in this context, and here's what he says. He says, either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve two. This is how it works, folks. And what he's saying is, is this principle that we have to start to wrap our minds around, is, and here's what it is. The human heart only has room for one God. The human heart only has room for one God. That's it. And this is how I see it. I'm a very visual person. That's why I love the whiteboard. I have a minor obsession with it. But I, this time, I kind of use a 3D whiteboard. I, I think of this as like a bookshelf, OK? And for some reason, this is just how it works in my mind. I, I kind of see what, what Jesus is asking is he's saying, boy, I, I want to be on the top shelf. Like, I want to have the exclusive room here. And whatever's on this top shelf really defines the rest. This is kind of the, the top level of priority. And I took my awesome uh, Costanzo wallet right here, and I've used this to kind of represent money. People always ask me, do you sit on this thing? You're going to have back problems, buddy. I do not sit on this. That would be dangerous. So let's go ahead and take these both and set these on this shelf and begin to play out the reasoning by why might, why might Jesus say this? Why might he say that you can't serve the master of God and the master of money or the God that is the one true God, or the God of money. Why can't I make my money an idol? Right? If we use this wallet as a representation for that idol. Well, here's why. It's impossible. It's not just a moral problem. It's not just wrong. It just doesn't work. Here's what I mean. Jesus would teach about all kinds of things, right? And if Jesus is my God, and I'm going to follow his philosophy, and I'm going to submit to his leadership, I'm going to treat him as a master, I can't go then to money and treat money in the same way. I can't go to money and say that money would be my master. I'm going to follow its philosophy. There's two very different competing philosophies And here's how they would look, right? Jesus would say, hey, uh, don't store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Store up your treasure in heaven, right? Don't store it on earth, store it in heaven. Money would say something very different. If I'm going to serve the God of money, I'm going to go and say, I'm going to use all of my resources. I'm going to advance and do all that I can. I'm going to put my passion, my heart to making that God grow. I'm going to serve it as a master. I'm going to offer sacrifice. I'm going to pursue. I'm going to give a level of devotion that should be only offered to God, and I'm going to give that to money. What that would begin to look like in a heart is this. Here's a great way to know that if I'm serving the God of money, um, I'd be extremely protective about my money. Ooh, like the room would get quiet. That was awkward. <laughs> I would be extremely protective, right? So if somebody starts to move towards my money, don't touch that government or church or anybody else. I don't want you messing with my money because it has a portion of my heart, boy, that really is only reserved for a God. And and I might learn about money and advance money and, and put all kinds of resources and energy towards making this thing grow. Now, here's where the rub comes, is these two philosophies are extremely convicting, conflicting philosophies. So if I follow Jesus' way, I'm going to be very frustrated with the God of money, right? Because Jesus wants me to invest in heaven, not on earth. 
If I'm following the God of money, I'm going to be very frustrated with Jesus, and I'm going to have to change his words and, and think about his asks differently. Jesus would say, I would be devoted to one and despise the other. I would hate one and love the other. I can't serve two masters. The human heart only has room for one God. Boy, I'm going to be a conflicted person unless I choose, man, who's going to actually sit on this shelf? Will it be this God or will it be this one? And here's the thing. I remember uh, thinking this, and people always ask me, well, what, what am I supposed to do then, Ryan, with money? Right? We have to work with money. We can't just give all our money away. We have to pay bills. We have to live. Money is fine. Money is not a problem. Money just doesn't live on this shelf. Right? It's got to go on a different shelf. It has to land somewhere else in my priority list. It cannot occupy the space that only God can occupy. I need to see it as a gift, not as a God. And we use money simply because Jesus introduced it to us. But what I, what I want to lead us into is that there's all kinds of different potential gods that, that fight for the real estate that really is only reserved for Jesus. Now, I brought a couple other things to look at and play with. I brought this little house. I got three daughters, so we got a lot of this stuff. It's crazy how much pink is in my house. And, and let's say that I'm, I want a house, and right, this is a derivative of the financial conversation, but let's say that I, I long to have that portion of the American dream. I want to have the house and the right house and the right zip code with the right place and the right school district, and that, I've elevated that beyond a gift, and I, I've actually made that a God, and I'm going to serve to that end, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interact with Jesus a little bit, but only to the point where it doesn't begin to conflict with this other God. That's a problem. I can't serve two masters. Is it wrong to have a house? Of course not. I certainly hope not coming out of this winter. We have to look and say, this house isn't a problem. It's not even a problem that it's a desire. It just can't sit on that shelf. It's got to go somewhere else. I have to move it out of the space that's only reserved for God. Guys, these kinds of idols, these gods that we have elevated from gifts up to the level of God invoke God's jealousy. And I want to move us and advance us even deeper into the conversation, into a passage that um, I have found deeply troubling myself. I actually think it's one of the most difficult passages, difficult things that I've ever seen recorded that Jesus said. And it's in Luke chapter 14. I think you want to turn there. Um, and Jesus um, is beginning to talk to a very difficult issue, and it's in regard to his jealousy, and it's in regards to idolatry. If you have a Bible, you want to turn there, Luke 14, 25. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one from under the chairs there, page 729. And let me, let me kind of uh, reconstruct the, the setting here for Jesus. So Jesus is into his ministry now. He's into the heat of it, right? And so people know who he is. So Jesus has been busy. He's been busy healing and kind of helping the blind to see, healing the sick, helping the deaf to hear, the lame to walk, the demons to be possessed and freed from people. He's given hope to the hopeless. Right? There, there's a momentum around Jesus. So much so that we would see Luke saying in 25, 
of chapter 14, large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And wherever Jesus would go, there would have been people, man. Everybody at this point in Jesus' ministry wanted a piece of Jesus. They're like, Jesus, heal me. Jesus, save me. Jesus, tell us something else that's going to blow our minds, right? Because Jesus was teaching and, and giving unbelievable insight an unbelievable fresh vision and perspective to Israel at that time. Large crowds were everywhere, and he couldn't even get space and room sometimes to eat. As these large crowds began to gather around Jesus, I think what happened is Jesus began to wonder what the motivation was for these crowds to attach to him. Because here's the thing. Jesus didn't come to make a big crowd. It wasn't actually his goal. Jesus didn't show up to to create huge masses of people that, that would just be attached to him. He didn't come to be a popular guy or a great teacher that everybody thought was awesome. Jesus didn't come to be a rock star. So I think what, it, what would happen every once in a while is these crowds began to form is Jesus would lovingly at certain times have a conversation with those crowds that would be clarifying, that would define the kind of relationship that Jesus was looking to have. Because while Jesus wasn't looking to build crowds, he was longing to build relationships. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He came to see the dead come to life spiritually. And he, he came with zeal and passion for people. He came to forgive sin and bring hope to the hopeless. And he longed for individuals to lock into him and to find that relationship that he died eventually to give them. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me, let me even pause there. I don't want you to hear if anyone comes to me as in if anybody bumped into Jesus. And it's not that he's just saying if anybody kind of walks by me and interacts with me casually, what he's saying when he says if anyone comes to me is he's saying if you approach me and you want to be my disciple, if you want me to be your rabbi, if you come to me and you want to lock in to this relationship, if you want to be in a committed and a defined relationship with me, That's the context in which he's addressing this crowd, giving clarity to why he's on the planet and what he's about. Here's what he says. 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, a wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Such a person cannot be my disciple. Let me give a clarifying statement to that. The word hate used in this language, in this context, meant to love less. It helps us a little bit. He says, if you want to come after me and be in this relationship with me, you have to look at mom and dad and brother and sister and wife and children, and you have to love them less than me. I need to be so far above 
your commitment to any other relationship that it almost, it looks like hate. You you need to love them that much less. Guys, let me ask you a question here. Let's be honest. Is Jesus being a jerk here? Is Jesus being a jerk? It was awesome. Last night in one of the services, this little kid over here just yells out in one second after I asked that, No! It was amazing. I was like, you have so much faith. It was beautiful. Now, is Jesus being a jerk? Let me answer a question with a question. Was I being a jerk when I asked my wife to marry me? Let me explain what I mean. When I looked at my wife, I brought a picture. It's our wedding day. Aw, When I married my wife, here was my heart towards her, right? I was crazy about her. I was crazy about her, right? And I was was looking at our relationship, and we had dated, and we were moving towards that level of commitment. We're ready to lock in. And man, I approached her, and I wanted to say, Lori, man, you're you're it for me. I want to provide for you and protect you, and I want to move towards you, and I want a different kind of relationship, and I'm all in. In fact, I won't date anyone else. Like, you're going to be the only woman for me. It's you and me, and I move towards her with that level of commitment, and I want to build a family together, and I want to do this together. Let's build a life and a family, and, and I'll kind of exclusively lock into a relationship with, with you. Now, as I move towards her, and I asked her to marry me, is what, what we don't really see and what she probably didn't even see at the time is I was asking her all kinds of questions that were attached to that question, will you marry me? Watch how this plays out. Because what I was really asking Lori without realizing it is what I was saying is, honey, I want you uh, to look at your parents who raised you and love you, and are committed to you. And I actually want you to be more committed to me than you are to them. And honey, I want you to look at your friends who you've leaned into and trusted and you've grown up with. And I want you to look at them and I want you to be more committed to me than you are to them. And in fact... Every human relationship on the planet, I want you to to devalue in light of the relationship with me. I I want you to press down your priorities, your dreams, your ambitions, all of who you are outside of your connection to Jesus. I I want you to, to put me at the top of the pile, so to say. We could say, I want to have exclusive real estate here, honey. Whew, that's a big question, isn't it? Was I a jerk in asking that question? Was I a jerk? Here's the thing. I was not asking Lori to love me. She already loved me. She loved me, and she loved her friends, and she loves musicals, and she loves all kinds of stuff. She's a fun person. 
What I was asking Lori when I asked her to marry me is I was asking her to love me the most. Because there's a huge difference there. I was looking to her and I was saying, honey, I want you to value me and be committed to me over every other relationship. And the only relationship outside of that that's untouchable is your relationship with Jesus. What a huge decision. So as we go back to Jesus, we look at Jesus and what he's stating here and what he's asking here. And we look at Jesus and we say, Jesus is not asking us to love him. Did you know that? Jesus is not looking at us and saying, hey, will, will you love me? Will you love Ohio State football and will you love Grace Church and will you love your mom and your dad and your brother and your sister and will you love Jesus? Jesus is saying, I don't want you to love me. I want you to love me the most. And guys, I want us to see this because as Jesus is moving towards us, here's here's what his commitment and his zeal is for us. This is a God who loves us enough to leave perfect heaven. And there's no pain. There's no suffering there. And he would come down and become a human being and endure sin and endure suffering and endure pain and endure failure. And he would go to the lengths of offering even his own life. He would allow himself to be wrongfully accused, misunderstood, beaten, and crucified. And he's going to offer all of himself in zeal and in an abandon. He says, I want to be your God, I'm moving towards you. I'm offering all that I have. And now I'm going to look back at you and say, well, I want to unapologetically ask for all of your heart. I want the exclusive real estate of being your God. Is it okay that Jesus doesn't apologize for that? Is it okay that Jesus wants to be enough for us? Look, when I looked to Lori and I wanted to get married and we stood and looked at each other at the altar and we looked at each other's eyes and we said vows to each other, you know, we said things like for richer or poorer, for better or worse, if the, if the rails come off, right, if, if everything that we hope happens in life fails, right, it's all a big wreck, I need to know that you and me, are, we're committed to one another, that my heart commitment to you is enough for you. Regardless of the money, regardless of the sex, regardless of what a relationship brings, am I enough for you? That's what everyone is asking when they look to get married. Boy, that you'll marry me for me. That my heart will be enough for you. That it's not the side benefit in, in the other thing that comes with the relationship that you're actually seeking. Jesus would look at us and say, as if the blessings never come. If, if the rails fall off. If you don't get what you hope to get out of life, am I enough for you? Will you 
And will you love me the most? Will I have exclusive real estate in the God section of your heart? And Jesus would look and say, guys, I've given you all kinds of gifts. I brought Spidey. He represents my kids. I love it. At least my boy. He'd say, Ryan, I gave you a great, great gift in your son. That great gift cannot rival me as God. Do you understand? He needs to be on a different shelf. You love him. You adore him. There's a level of passion that's appropriate in your parenting relationship. But, But boy, don't worship him. Don't make him rival to me. That beautiful baby of yours, what a gift. Don't invoke my jealousy by by putting her on the same shelf with me. So much so that she would drive your life and that she would own the portion of your heart that's really built, designed, created for God. As God will have no rival, career advancement can't live here. Health, body image can't live here. Social connection, media, it can't live here. God will have no other gods. He will have no rivals he unapologetically is asking for the highest level of devotion. I don't know about you, I don't think he's a jerk in doing that. In fact, because the human heart only has room for one God, it's an act of love that he would make this ask. And it's appropriate for him to do so. In anything that creeps up onto this shelf will appropriately invoke the good kind of jealousy, the kind that's zealous for our hearts. As I told you um, last week, that kind of the impetus for this series for me was my own interaction with this conversation. And and what I've seen in my own heart, my own life, is that um, the gifts that God has given me have a tendency to creep. They kind of creep up the shelves, you know. And as I was taking some time, I started to see some of the, um, the main temptations for idolatry for me, which I'll just be honest with you. Um, it's my marriage. It's my kids, my family, right? And probably, if I had to be honest, it's also the, the ministry that God's given me, which I'm crazy passionate about. As I interacted with God on this, God is saying, Ryan, you have to deal with this. These are decisions that you're making. You have to treat your marriage as a gift. You have to treat your children as a gift, the ministry that God has given you as a gift. Because here's what happens when we don't treat these things as gifts and we interact with them as gods is what happens is 
the space that we allow Jesus to interact with us begins to shrink. Well, Jesus, you can have kind of all of my life except this huge portion that has to do with, with me and Lori. God, you can have everything except the, the portion that has to do with my kids. Or, Lord, you can have everything except what has to do with my money. And at the end of the day, after we evaluate all the space that's taken up by all the gods, we, we give Jesus this uh, minute portion of our actual heart. I started to see this in myself as I was quarantining areas of my life and saying, God, you can't touch this part. I was protecting it. Boy, because I don't want to hurt my wife or my kids or whatever. Guys, what do we do with this? Here's where I think we have to land. In this conversation, we have to begin to evaluate and begin to ask God, God, what priorities and gifts that you've given have have crept up to this level to become maybe even a God in my life? I said, let me give clarity to this for a minute. If you have an idol in your life, it doesn't mean that you, you're not saved. It doesn't mean you don't, we're not talking about salvation here. We're talking about loving Jesus the most. What we're saying is, I'm going to fight to keep this shelf clear for Jesus. Let me show you what I mean. If I, if I start to love money as much as I love my wife, does that mean we're not married anymore? Nope. Means I got work to do. Means I have heart work to do. So, guys, one of the things I think we have to do is we have to look at this shelf. We have to look and say, very honestly, what is on here that shouldn't be on here? What idol is showing up that's it's invoking God's jealousy? As in, it might be a good gift that God has given, I think it often is. It might be a secret sin. It might be some portion of your heart that nobody knows about. But whatever it is, we have to face that because we have a God who is jealous, man, and he is passionate and protective of his relationship with us. As in, then the ultimate question for all of us, regardless of where you are spiritually, you could be in the church forever and ever, or maybe this is your first time here, I simply want to ask you one question, and I don't want you to forget it, and I don't want you to miss it. It's critically important. It's very simple. Will you choose to love Jesus the most? The most. Above everything. Even my wife, even your wife, even my husband, even them, even your children, even them, even the ambitions, even the drives, even the passions of your, whatever it is, will you love Jesus more than anything else? Guys, at the end of the day, um, just like Lori making a decision to marry me, that's a decision. It's a faith decision to make. As if you've never made that decision before, regardless of if you said yes to Jesus and salvation, I would ask you, would you make that decision today? 
and say, Jesus, I will love you more than anything else on this planet, any ambition, any relationship, any possession, you, man, you get the shelf. It's yours. And I'll fight for it. If you never made that decision before, make that. It's life-changing. I promise it will change your life more than any other decision outside of receiving Christ's forgiveness. Guys, I'm going to have the band come out. And as they do, I, I want to recognize there's a couple steps, a couple ways for us to process this mammoth conversation. I realize it's a big one. It's more than we can cover in 35 minutes. One of the best things that we can do is actually interact with God, and we're going to do that in a minute. We're going to spend some time actually praying and actually giving God some room to interact with our hearts. You guys, if you need to make decisions, that's a great time to move forward in those decisions. It might be a little more complicated than that, and you might want some more help. Guys, I would encourage you to talk to your life group leader about this shelf and if maybe some things need to be moved off of it. Say, man, I don't know what to do. Help me to to make this decision. I'm afraid. It's scary. If you're not in a life group or if you want to talk to the staff, guys, write that on the connection card. Listen, there is nothing that we would love more than to help you love Jesus the most. Ugh, that's what we live for. Seeing people interact with a jealous God who's passionate for you, passionate for me. Guys, let's land here. And I want to ask uh, the band to go ahead and start playing. We can lower the lights. And I want us to close our eyes, bow our heads, take a deep breath, and actually let's just, let's be quiet for a minute. As you settle in, kind of quiet your heart, would you ask Jesus to show you what may be on that shelf with him? Would you ask Jesus to show you, like he showed me, would you show us the idols that are in our lives? Often good gifts that are turned into God's. Would you be honest and would you ask Jesus to reveal that to you now as you kind of open your heart to him? As you're praying, 
God's bringing something to mind. And that, that idol has a name now. As I'd ask you, would you confess that to Jesus and ask for his forgiveness for it? Would you say, Lord, I'm, I'm sorry that I have worshipped this over you? And finally, is would you open your heart to Jesus? And would you say, Lord, I, I don't know how and I'm afraid, but I want to love you the most. I want you to be enough for me. And I choose to love you more than anything else. Would you reaffirm that decision or make it for the first time if you never have? Father, we ask you to give us courage in honesty. Lord, help us to see the idols, to lay them down, and Lord, we, we ask you to be number one in our hearts, the first and the last. Lord, we want to love you most. We want to make that decision today, Lord, and help us. Give us the strength to be true. Because, Lord, you're jealous for us. And you long to have the relationship that you died to give us, Jesus. Lord, work in our hearts this morning.